welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 18 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? Oh, very well, Mary. Thank you. And uh, we're in a desperate rush to finish up some projects before the season changes, but it's great to take a little break and talk with you. Oh, I'm so grateful that you're able to do that. As usual, plenty going on in the industry right now, so lots to discuss. Uh, First, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Marianne Simpson. She's an aviation journalist who has worked in the industry for years. She previously headed up the industry publication PAX International, which covered the onboard passenger experience. Now, she writes for Runway Girl Network, Aircraft Interiors International, and Apex Experience Magazine, among other titles, and she also provides marketing support to various PaxX firms. Marianne, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing very well today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's great to have you. It sure is, Marianne. We're looking forward to a fantastic conversation. All right, let's do it. All right, well, let's take a look at some of the top PaxX news stories that are making headlines. For starters, Runway Girl Network this week broke the story that AT&T has decided not to launch a 4G LTE in-flight connectivity service in the U.S. Mary, you've been tracking this story very closely. So what does this news mean for the passenger experience in the United States? Well, it came as quite a shock to many individuals, um, including folks that had been looking forward to working with AT&T to roll out uh, this 4G LTE in-flight connectivity service. Uh, So it was a bit of a surprise, guys, um, that AT&T decided to take this, uh, to to opt not to do this. Um, The company explained that uh, it has bought a, a Mexican wireless provider and uh, that, combined with uh, its acquisition of DirecTV, has it pretty focused on uh, on other deliverables, and uh, and so it decided that in-flight connectivity, uh, it, at least pursuing it in this way, uh, didn't make sense. So, what does it mean for passengers? Well, there were a lot of individuals that were kind of looking forward to AT and T jumping into the market because, um, whilst uh, we love our air-to-ground based connectivity here in the U.S., um, uh, provided by by GoGo, uh, there is uh, room for improvement uh, in the speeds, and um, and so there was so there was a lot of hope that maybe AT and T would not only start delivering uh, on those uh, speeds, but also might uh, provide the competition necessary to ensure that that the likes of GoGo and other in-flight connectivity providers stayed on their toes. So in that regard, I think there was uh, there is some disappointment, um, but uh, I think it's important to note that just because because AT&T has decided it's not going to build its own network to support in-flight connectivity, doesn't necessarily mean that it won't find another way back into the space. Um, they could absolutely look at jumping back in by buying an in-flight connectivity provider like GoGo. Um, and, uh, of course, they could also reach some maybe creative partnership uh, arrangements with in-flight connectivity providers similar to what T-Mobile and GoGo did recently. Um, so it doesn't take them kind of necessarily completely out of the game. Um, but for now, they're not going to launch this service. Max, um, what do you think about all this? It's very interesting. It's also interesting to see what the reaction has been to the GoGo stock, which I, I guess went up immediately after the AT&T announcement. Yeah, that's been wild to see, actually, because when AT&T first announced this, um, GoGo stock plummeted. 
And, uh, you know, they, all AT&D did was put out a press release and say, we're going to launch this service. GoGo stock plummeted. People thought to themselves, there's no way GoGo will be able to compete. Uh, when AT&T then just this week told us that uh, it had decided it, it wasn't going to do that after all, GoGo's shareholders, let's just say, are very, very happy right now. <laughs> they are enjoying uh, some really, uh, a really nice bump. But um, I think it's important to note that, uh, and this is something actually that Marianne has also covered for Aircraft Interiors, that there is an auction around the corner. The FCC is getting ready to to auction um, some new spectrum that would support air-to-ground connectivity. They're using KU-band spectrum to be able to do it. And um, it looks like GoGo is going to face some serious competition at the auction for this spectrum. So we're paying close attention to this because uh, Qualcomm could jump in. Um, it's entirely possible that another major telco could consider jumping in. And, of course, there are major players in the in-flight entertainment and connectivity space that also might look at uh, playing in the auction. So while uh, while GoGo is kind of safe for now, um, there is a potential uh, serious competitive threat around the corner. Hey, Marianne, I know that you, you dove deep for a feature in aircraft interiors about the in-flight connectivity space. Uh, any thoughts on, on AT&T's decision and, and where GoGo sits? Um, well, I think Google's in a very good position, um, you know, with the variety of models that it is pursuing. Uh, we know that they have several different antenna types. They're doing air-to-ground. They're doing um, full satellite connectivity um, and a, a hybrid of that, which is great for GoGo. Um, that article was specifically more around the antennas. However, I did actually kind of look into for Runway Girl Network uh, potential issues to this this uh, KU band spectrum being used for uh, in-flight connectivity uh, that revolve around Google's plan to launch an NGSO satellite constellation and some potential interference issues that might happen there. So I'm really interested to see if this auction does go forward, how valuable that spectrum really is, uh, considering that there are a lot of obstacles that uh, any operator would need to work around these uh, constellation of Google satellites that are scheduled for launch in 2019. You know what? That's a great point. You you wrote that fantastic piece, and since then, and since then, um, Elon Musk has said that they're looking to, and they'll make a decision in the next few months. He just tweeted this the other day uh, that SpaceX might launch an entire constellation of uh, of mini satellites um, that uh, <laughs> essentially uh, looks like uh, somewhat of a continuation of what uh, what Google had originally uh, proposed. Um, through various uh, kind of vague news reports. Um, so, yeah, so that space is – the skies are getting crowded. There's it, there's definitely a lot of interest in getting satellites up there. And then, of course, interference becomes a big issue. But, but Max, this is kind of an example of how we have to cover the satellite space in order to understand what's happening in passenger experience. Oh, absolutely. It's integral to the whole, uh, to the whole topic. Another uh, feature of this is in all these scenarios that we're mentioning here that – Investment dollars are huge. Uh, we're talking billions. So AT and T, I guess, uh, paid two billion dollars to acquire that Mexican uh, 
wireless company uh, setting up their own uh, network uh, as they had originally indicated they would, uh, of course, is is also very, very expensive. And uh, so it's kind of a high stakes game. Uh, the investments are are huge, and you you sort of bet your company when you make these kinds of decisions. And I guess AT and T has you know looked at the situation and uh, presumably made a uh, business decision, and and they're going to uh, follow the strategy they've decided is the the best for the company. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, what what we're hearing is that they looked at the the balance sheet and they looked at the amount of money, the amount of cash that they would need to integrate these new businesses that they've acquired. Uh, that, as you say, are uh, multi-billion-dollar deals. Here, um, they looked at what they they were trying to accomplish, and they realized that they had to take some of their plans off the table. And in-flight connectivity was one of them because right. they need the cash to integrate these other businesses. So, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what they decided to do. So, just very quickly, I do think it bears mentioning that. I think AT&T probably also had something to consider because United Airlines recently announced that it's going to fit its 200-plus regional jets with GoGo connectivity. So you have AT&T that's kind of in the market, was offering these sweetheart deals to airlines just to get them on board and to get them to take the leap. And yet even still, you have uh, you know major carriers opting to go with the GoGo solution. It's a here and now solution. And these airlines also have relationships with GoGo. So it is interesting. You can't discount the importance of having a really solid, nice relationship with an airline. GoGo is enjoying that nice relationship with both Delta, United, and also oh, some of its other partners. And in fact, United recently told us that they really like how GoGo operates. So, uh, thumbs up to really having you know a nice, solid partnership and making your customer generally happy. I guess, right? Sure, absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on. And we know that Marianne, you recently witnessed construction of a new civil aviation research facility in Hamburg, the Center for Applied Aeronautical Research. And it's being billed as one of the most advanced facilities of its kind in the world. So, Marianne, what can you tell us about this facility and who's involved? Well, this facility really is going to be something outstanding. Um, It basically was spearheaded by the city of Hamburg, uh, the local aviation industry, as well as the, I guess the local academic institutions, which cater to um, people who want to become professionals in aviation fields. Uh, so we've got the city of Hamburg holding a 20% stake in the building. Uh, Airbus is holding a 20% stake in the building. So is Lufthansa Technik. And then the remainder of the shares are smaller, you know, 8 or 3% going to various um, aerospace groups, like Hansa Aerospace, for example, is in there. And then there's four separate universities. Uh, so what happened is that in 2008, Hamburg's Aviation Cluster won a competition in Germany uh, to, to be called the Leading Edge Cluster. And it's the only one in uh, Germany for aviation that's a Leading Edge Cluster. Uh, and this basically resulted in a giant cash infusion for Hamburg to kind of develop this cluster over five years. Uh, that five years ended in 2013. However, uh, they took 80 million euros and invested it in the uh, construction of this center, which will effectively bring a lot of uh, the, the local industry together under one roof with the academic institutions and with you know, some funds from the city to further uh, research and innovate and try to help the whole uh, chain of innovation, getting a product from concept to uh, through testing into the cabin faster and cheaper. Wow. 
they are busy, busy there in Hamburg. Um, it, this is quite an impressive facility. I've seen the the uh, the concepts thus far, Marianne, and and we had a little exchange uh, uh, with the folks that are handling their public relations uh, for a recent piece on the network, and. Uh, it's quite exciting. Um, it, it sounds like the folks that are going to be participating in this will have the opportunity to kind of showcase uh, their innovations and let people come in and, and even have an interactive experience with, with some of uh, what they're going to be doing. Right. They're going to have something called an innovation marketplace. So they've set aside some square uh, meterage, I guess, within the 20. 5,000 square meter facility uh, where companies, like you said, can can put ideas or even products out there and uh, install maybe iPads or other means of collecting feedback so that other people from other companies or students or whoever happens to be in the facility that day can kind of walk through this marketplace, take a look at these innovations or concepts and, uh, you know, give feedback on it. It's exciting. Um, from a passenger experience perspective, uh, they are also going to have a number of aircraft cabin rigs. And um, I understand Airbus has, has, is, is snatching up these rig, rigs for a few years. But, um, but, you know, what's great is that they'll be able to try brand new seat concepts by the sounds of it. And they could probably get really wild with what they with what they try in these cabin rigs i'd imagine i mean at this point uh, there's a lot of ideas out there that that do not follow a traditional uh seating configuration that people would love to test maybe this is the opportunity to do that that's right these rigs are totally modular um they have access points on different levels so one rig might actually span kind of three floors of the hangar space for testing there so people can access the cargo access uh you know the the upper part access the uh main level and yeah really play around and figure out what they can do and how quickly they can do it work on installation times and things like that and the scope of this facility is just really impressive i mean twenty five thousand square meters is no, no small facility but i understand that they're looking to populate that with some 600 engineers and scientists so that, that op- opens up the opportunity for a, an awful lot of research and uh, interesting ideas to come out of it right well they're opening it up for like i like i said uh companies that are already kind of operating in the area or they're even trying to draw in companies from other countries that don't currently have a base in germany uh so basically the area is going to be open for rent companies will be able to come in and rent time in the labs or to rent uh office space there's an auditorium for 200 people uh there's going to be a hydrogen and fuel cell technology lab fuselage assembly integration, environmental control and power systems, um, a virtual reality room, uh, you name it. They're they're even planning to have creativity rooms. Like, for example, we hear about at Google, you know, where the people can kind of go in and play with toys and maybe take a nap and and sort of be stimulated or inspired uh, to come up with new concepts. Now, Marianne, am I correct in assuming that this facility is for the benefit of the the tenants and the shareholders rather than uh, being a a profit-generating business in its own right? Um, I would assume that somebody wants to make a little bit of money. I mean, they they do have, you know, some large investors who want their capital returned, of course. But, yeah, the idea of this really, really is to kind of further Hamburg's position as a center of innovation in cabin systems and assembly in the world. I mean, they're never – they don't have any illusions about surpassing Seattle – 
where where um, Boeing is based, or Toulouse, which is the actual home of Airbus. But they really do want to maintain Hamburg's position as third uh, city for aviation in the world. Can I make a totally random observation here um, that it doesn't have anything to do with the actual what they're doing? But when I saw the the drawings of the building, I had to say that it looks so modern and so clean. And I just wonder, you know, Max, I just feel like America sometimes is falling behind when it comes to our building. I mean, you got to see, did you get to see some of the drawings there? Like, this looks like a totally efficient, totally, you know, German efficient, modern building. It it is, it is. It's quite wonderful. When when you translate or retranslate back into German, the Center for Applied Aeronautical Research, you get ZAL. And yeah. their website is uh, zal.aero, A-E-R-O, of course. And, uh, yeah, that's where you can find a lot of the uh, the drawings, the illustrations, the images uh, surrounding this uh, research center. And it just uh, – as a competitive advantage, I think these guys have something going for them. Yeah. I wonder if it will prompt any kind of response on this side of the pond. The you thing know. is it kind of takes uh, a big thinker. To uh, come up with a, a concept like this and actually bring it to uh, fruition, uh, I mean, we we tend to be uh, more company centric, you know, individual companies, yeah. and this is a situation where you know a region, an, an area, has decided to uh, do something significant and has you know taken the lead in bringing in these different uh, interests, these different companies. It's sometimes harder to do that in the U.S. Yeah, that's a good point, and it also bears mentioning, of course, that Ham- Hamburg is really put its flag in the sand when it comes to aircraft interiors. I mean, the uh, the giant aircraft interiors expo is held every year in Hamburg, and that has become really the go-to event if you're covering passenger experience. I always say that uh, you know, we're able to go there and we're able to stockpile stories for months um, based on the turnout that they get at Aircraft Interiors. And uh, that's a Reed Expo um, exhibition, and it grows year over year over year. Marianne has uh, actually observed this for us. Uh, you know, Marianne, I, you wrote about this not so long ago, how even we're seeing, uh, say, for example, content providers providers now edging into aircraft interiors um, because it's become such a great show. Yeah, and it's interesting because the show is already so huge and takes up so much space at the uh, Hamburg Messe and and, uh, Congress Center in the city here that they actually had to erect um, a tent outside for the content providers uh, to get them in there. So it will be interesting to see in the coming years what they do with those guys, if they stay in a tent or if they get their own hall. Uh, In the food and beverage hall, now they've opened up the upstairs part and the exhibitors were not too thrilled that we're up there because it was a little bit hard for the delegates to find. Um, however, it just goes to show, I mean, every year there's a new area that's open, um, and, and there's, you know, trying to find places to put all these exhibitors who want to be part of it. Wow. Yeah. It's wonderful. All right. Well, finally, our friend Jason Rabinowitz has written an article for NYC Aviation about how Route Happy and travel booking site Expedia have teamed up to ensure that passengers can see how individual flights are rated by Route Happy. You'll recall that Route Happy uses uh, uh, an algorithm based on various factors, including the seat size and whether entertainment and connectivity is offered. Mary, you're a pretty vocal fan of Route Happy. How is this partnership going to benefit passengers? 
Oh, I love this service. I love this service, Max. Ever since it came on, I just thought, oh, my goodness, this is the way forward. Um, because Root Happy has these guys, and Jason Rabinowitz, uh, who also writes for Roma Girl Network and a number of other titles, um, he's, he's their, their data guy right now, and they're actually in the process of hiring, uh, hiring others. Um, they get data from all over the world about aircraft, everything from the seat pitch, seat width, to whether there is in-seat power or not, to whether or not there's in-flight entertainment or not, what type of entertainment, the in-flight connectivity. They've even drilled down to the types of in-flight connectivity, whether it's L-band, KU-band, KA-band, ATG, and they've rated it all. So all of these nice, uh, really robust um, scores uh, that Route Happy has given to these different products and what they call happiness factors, i.e., how happy are you going to be in that, in that, uh, in that seat? Uh, this is being uh, now uh, integrated with the Expedia search. And apparently, starting this week, all users of, the, of Expedia will benefit from the full use of uh, Route Happy scores and happiness factors. I have to say I'm thrilled. Um, I'm thrilled to see this happen because personally, these, these things are very important to me. I care about uh, how, uh, what type of seat I'm in. I care about the seat pitch and I care about whether or not I've got connectivity. And um, I think this really gives Expedia a nice little advantage. I mean, I wonder if we'll see other you know, search engines, en- engine sites uh, uh, do the same. But here we have a major online travel agent linking up with Route Happy. It's definitely a coup for them. What do you think? You know, the first thing I think of is it reminds me of the, well, in the U.S., the AAA ratings. You know, you can you can uh, listen to the manufacturers and see what they have to say, but uh, here's an independent authority that provides, you know, good rankings and ratings um, and, and gives you another dimension to uh, make your decision, which I mm-hmm. think is an issue because uh, a lot of flyers are kind of one-dimensional in terms of how they make their decisions and uh, look at the price on a, right. on, on a site, uh, you know, like this. And uh, being able to bring this additional information in, I think, is, is huge for passengers. Oh, I do as well. I do as well. Marianne, what do you think? I mean, you want as much visibility as possible when you're searching for a flight. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, most people who are booking travel really do go through these types of search engines. And, you know, they're not industry experts like us. They're not, you know, all fascinated by flight the way we are. They don't know the aircraft that, you know, an airline websites are not set up to make the easiest thing to find what kind of aircraft are you flying in and what's our seat pitch and and which seats are best and what sort of entertainment do we have? You know, there's there are a lot more vague about that on the site and it's kind of buried deep. Uh, so for this to be directly in the search engine that people are finding through their Google searches when they want to go on holiday or when they need to book a business trip uh, is great because I don't think that they would take the time to locate that information on their own, although it is very important to them. So it begs the question, will this help? Because there's a lot of folks out there that are saying, you know, we're seeing the commoditization of air travel and that it's all just becoming the same. But the reality is that there is still quite a difference in some of these seats. Um, some airlines still, you know, offer a, a better seat pitch than others. We're holding out, hoping that JetBlue, uh, which is under serious pressure from Wall Street to tighten up its cabins and add more seats, we're hoping that they uh, that they hold out and, and stick with the passenger experience here and continue to offer us this really nice legroom on JetBlue aircraft. But it's a it's a perfect example of how. There really is, um, uh, you know, there really is a way to differentiate still. Now, will passengers care? We hope so. And maybe, maybe by 
providing this level of visibility and ensuring that, that passengers are actually able to see exactly what they're going to get, that maybe it will start to become more uh, impactful when they when they go to book. As Max said, price still is number one, um, and uh, and hopefully product is is going to as as the product becomes more visible, it will become more impactful. But I mean, it does it does beg mentioning that uh, you've got the likes of Spirit Airlines, and they are cooking with gas, Max, aren't they? Oh, they are. This- you know, uh, you mentioned JetBlue. It's uh, interesting that just on uh, this week's Airplane Geeks, we talked about an article that uh, George Habaka wrote uh, titled New Thinner Park Bench Airline Seats and What You Can oh. Do About Them. And he offers five uh, five possible solutions. And uh, the number two of his uh, list is fly on JetBlue. Yes. <laughs> I love that recommendation. It's because it's so true. Yes, absolutely. Of course, number five is uh, either drive or stay home, which, which is you know which is what it's coming to. I think for a certain number of uh, mm-hmm. would be airline passengers. I agree. You get to the point where you know it's so uncomfortable that you actually think to yourself, "Could I? Could I drive it?" You know. Um, am I willing to, to, am I willing to suck it up and for how many hours? Um, you know, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's harder on people that are passengers of size and passengers of height, of which I fall into this category. Uh, um, Marianne, you are more of a petite nature and, um, you don't have as much problem with these slim seats, do you? No, they don't bother me quite so much. (laughs) (laughs) But the uh, but the 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 legroom issue is is obviously a big one, and that's the one that everybody is you know really starting to get very vocal about. Shoulder room is a big one for somebody oh. who's a little bit shorter like me. Legroom maybe not might not be such so much of an issue, but if the person uh, in the seat next to me is spilling over into my seat, and you know we're wrestling over the armrests, and they're constantly touching you, then it really infringes on on your feeling of personal space of well well being on board. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Max, as a man, you know, if you're sitting beside, if you're in the middle seat and you've got two kind of broad-shouldered men sitting on either side of you, have you ever had a shoulder-to-shoulder type of situation? This is something that my partner complains about. He's like, it's so tight shoulder-to-shoulder if, you've, if you're in the middle of two guys. Oh, and you can feel claustrophobic about it. It's a very yeah. un- unpleasant experience. Uh, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be between two guys. Well, maybe for the shoulders, but uh, I, I have uh, gone on record as stating that I have used uh, the woman sitting next to me, her thigh as an armrest because of uh, the degree to which it was uh, overflowing, let's say, into my seat. It happens every day. It does. It does. It does. It does. But then I hearken back to prior comment where if this is the way it's going, then let's go bench style seating and let's all just commingle together. That's right. <laughs> Let's all get cozy together on a bench-style seat then, if this is where it's happening. We're all friends. Oh, Lord. Well, we are rapidly coming to a close. It's, I find it interesting that most of these conversations end up talking about seats. It just goes to show you the, the importance of uh, the seats these days. Um, many thanks to our listeners. Uh, remember, you can find us online at runwaygirlnetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at Runway Girl. And remember to use the Sex hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. It is very vibrant these days. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to Marianne for being our guest. Marianne, where can listeners find you at? You can find me on Twitter at JetwayMJ, and I'm also on LinkedIn, Marianne Simpson. 
And you're also generating a lot of great content. So uh, people can read you on Romeo Go Network and these other titles. So That's right. All right, good. Well, then join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. 